0: Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 7th, 2022. I'm Charles Han. I'm a filmmaker, I'm here with Todd Blankenship, cinematographer. Hey, what's up everyone? Uh, Gigi Hawkins, filmmaker.
1: Hello there.
0: And George Edelman, editor-in-chief of No Film School. Hello. And this week we're going to be talking about Tom Cruise's thoughts on the possibility of a Top Gun sequel, way back in 1989. (laughs) We are going to be talking about James Cameron's thoughts on people's opinions about his work and whether he cares. Spoiler, no, he does not. We're going to be talking about building community through screening series and backyards. In tech news, we're going to be talking about the Laiwa nanomorphs a little bit more because Todd was curious and wasn't on the episode last week. So like, we'll do that at the end. So if you're like, I don't need to hear more about these lenses, you can stop. But if you're like, ooh, I did want to know more and I bet Todd has good questions, you can (laughs) stick around. And that'll bit, be this a, week.
2: It's a bit of pressure, but I'll try. I mean, you have great questions. <laughs> okay. Good you also time have good answers.
0: Think. You have many <laughs> okay. things. Oh, they.
2: Oh man, we're starting out with the compliments. I like this. Yeah, this is. A, <laughs> I mean, I love everyone
0: on this podcast. It's yeah, it's a good time. So that's this week on the No Film School podcast. You know, we mostly talk about more indie fare on this podcast. Top Gun Maverick is like the opposite of indie fare. It is like the highest grossing and the biggest budget and the least nuanced. But I saw it. It was good. I don't know anyone who has seen it who does not think it was good. Like even the indiest of indie people I know is like, yeah, I saw it with my dad. It's good. You can't help it. Such a dad movie but it's <laughs> yeah. but it's also it's
3: made a bill it's made a bill right or it's it's like it's doing it's doing amazing remember well. when a bill
0: just meant a hundred dollars like your buddy would be like oh yeah <laughs> no. no it means an actual billion bill but you million. found this amazing quote in playboy george you were flipping through some vintage okay. playboy at a garage so, sale no i wish
3: actually no i wish it was me flipping through playboys but it's not it's John Frankensteiner at J Frankensteiner on Twitter.
0: This is one of my favorite Twitter I'm follows. sorry. I have to be a pedant. It's, it's finished playboy. It's not playboys plural. It's playboy. That's the okay. plural. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah <laughs> oh, I yeah, thought yeah. that would be actually be funny. It wasn't funny. So we should <laughs> cut the whole thing out. Like you can't be a grammar pedant about fucking playboy. So but, okay, a, a flock
2: of playboy is just a, is just playboy.
0: Yeah, I think it? so. I think it's singular. <laughs> we're t- Play. I made it even worse, Charles. Let's move on. I just want to beat the the ghost of uh Hugh Hefner into the ground. I just want to make yeah. sure he is like spinning in his grave. Anyway. <laughs> it's only funny. articles
3: now, right? Is that where exactly. they stand? Um so You didn't know he died? I, I didn't f- either.
0: I kinda Oh no, he died oh, wow. right before the Me Too thing happened, and there are all these theories that his like, he had cast some protective spell over Hollywood, and when he died is when all the stories came out.
1: Yeah, I believe
0: that. He's also um, the yeah. saddest human being I've ever met in my entire life. You like, met him? Just, like, you met him? Yeah, I did a shoot at the Playboy Mansion. It was one of those things earlier in my career, some journalist from The Guardian whose whole shtick was what a prude she was, like, she was really cool. But, like, her shtick was like, wouldn't it be ridiculous if I went to these places and I'd be, like, the uncomfortable English woman who's in L.A.? <laughs> And she got the Playboy Mansion to agree to let her go. And so she called everybody she knew in LA and was like, hey, do you know any camera people who would like come shoot me be awkward at the Playboy Mansion? And I was and a friend of mine was English, asked me if I would do it. I, I was like, fuck yeah. And four hours later, I was at the Playboy Mansion.
1: Seeing how sad Hugh Hefner was.
0: It it was like he like wandered around in a in like put like, like he's an old man wandering around the house in pajamas and a bathrobe at like four in the afternoon. And it was just like, so sad. All the playmates were super nice. Everybody else who was there was really nice. I met the projectionist. He was a really cool guy because they have like an in-house movie theater. But then every once in a while, like Hugh Hefner would wander by and you're like, oh God, like you're... He's
1: just a grandpa. He's just an old man. No, he's yeah, way that,
0: that, that, sadder that, that, than a grandpa. Cause the, like, the heyday was
3: probably like five decades prior.
0: <laughs> but I don't even <laughs> think he was having fun Whatever it was. Like, I think he was always a man pretending to be something else. And I think there's nothing sadder than pretending to be something you're not. And I think he was always pretending to be someone he wasn't. And like, and we talked to the chef for a while and like, he eats the same thing every day and it's like a hard boiled egg. And like, and I'm like, dude, you're not even in, like, it was just, it was all, it was like, ugh. But the Whoa. journalist lady was super fun and we got to tour the zoo and the zoo's quite nice there. Anyway. You got don't you just love,
2: stories. I love the stories you get in this industry, just the weird oh, yeah. things that happens to you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, only because yeah. I work
0: in film did I get to visit the Playboy Mansion and see Hugh Hefner on a Tuesday afternoon be all sad.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know he eats hard-boiled eggs and is <laughs> Eight. <laughs> Past tense.
3: Eight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes, yes.
1: He's no longer eating... <laughs> So, it's true, tough, though. Guys.
3: I mean, you stick around. Like I've, I shot some interviews. I think I did Ray. I did one where I was at Ray Bradbury's house, and I did one where I was Ooh. at Gore Vidal's house. I did some weird, you know, just and they weren't weird. They were just like shooting interview stuff. But yeah, when you kick around, you get some interesting. Uh, you get to watch. I some- hear
0: old Gore Vidal was a little bit depressed, but like, oh I, yeah, I, sure. he was barely hanging like, on.
3: But interesting. But old Ray Bradbury must have been having a blast, right? Beautiful, full of life, like awesome, inspiring to see you know. Nerds.
0: Um, Nerds. Just, yeah. Just <laughs> embrace that you're a nerd. Love yourself for being a nerd. Let yourself be a nerd. Love your shit. Yeah. God bless. Mm. Anyway, um, you were saying about reading old Playboys in your neighbor's yeah. garage <laughs> Yes, came across I, yeah. this story.
3: Right. That's where we were. This follow on Twitter, I'm going to give this man a shout out one way or another. <laughs> John <laughs> Frankensteiner is the name, but it's Jay Frankensteiner. He's really fun. He does a lot of film-related stuff or all film-related stuff. If you're listening, I've asked him to do stuff with no film school. He's just too busy, but he's awesome. Anyway, he digs up all these great quotes. He dug up this one. He said, found this amusing part of a 1990 Tom Cruise interview. Playboy, question. Born on the 4th of July is also the flip side of Top Gun, which is essentially war by Nintendo game and a pan to blind patriotism. Cruz's answer. Okay. Some people felt that Top Gun was a right-wing film to promote the Navy and a lot of kids loved it, but I want the kids to know that's not the way war is. The Top Gun was just an amusement park ride, a fun film with the PG-13 rating that was not supposed to be reality. And that's why I didn't go on and make Top Gun 2 and 3 and 4 and 5. That would have been irresponsible.
0: So what's fascinating Before about- Before we talk about this, can I just commend you on your performance? I felt like there was a lot of nuance- <laughs> Like you oh, didn't yeah. lean into a I Cruise impersonation, but I felt like you like you gave that quote like a lot of I liked it.
3: I considered trying to do Cruz, but then I was like, I don't even know what that is. It's more in the eyes and the crazy unblinking stare. But like anyway, Tom Cruise, obviously, this is a bit of a gotcha, like historically, because he made Top Gun Maverick. Although the joke is he didn't make Top Gun 2. He made Top Gun Maverick. Maverick. But either way, either way, what's fun about this quote to me. Is and the reason I wanted to talk to you guys about it on the podcast and for our readers because you're right, Charles. Top Gun Maverick is not really uh, super significant, although we had the editor on the podcast. It's a great interview, but it's not like in terms of significance of the film as a whole to you know the indie filmmaker. However, man has the industry changed. Tom Cruise was a major star then; he's a major star now. And at that time, not only doing a movie like Born on the Fourth of July, which is a extremely political film, but talking about it in a context with Top Gun, his, his mainstream fare, as like, yeah, that's fun. That's for the kids. This is serious. This is the serious work. Like, that's not the world we live in anymore. Can you even imagine him addressing the very real fact that Top Gun Maverick has a very strong relationship to our military industrial complex and certain ideologies. Like he would never talk about that now. Now, maybe it's because Scientology has cleansed him of these kinds of concerns. I don't know. But either way, that's a very different place in the late 1980s or early 1990s that he was at both as like what a movie, even if you look at it from like what a movie star's career was then, then you made like your Top Guns, but you were trying to be a guy who made movies like Born on the 4th of July. You were trying to be somebody who is making these serious movies where you were going to win an award and be taken seriously as an actor. Like now, just open big. Like th- that's become way more. I mean, yes, there are lots of filmmaker, filmmakers and, and actors who are chasing you know, prestige in a different way. But Tom Cruise literally was just like, I just want to make a movie that gets people into theaters. That's all I want to do anymore and mission accomplished, right? So, things have changed a lot. That to me that's the crazy part. But I want to know what you guys think if you agree or disagree or, you know. I think it, imitations.
1: I don't have a Tom Cruise imitation yet, but I'm working on it and I'll come back soon with one. Hopefully that will impress everyone. But, I <laughs> I th- It kind of makes me sad that, you know, today, I don't think anyone in his position would feel comfortable making any type of political statement. Um, we're in this, like, world of both fear of being canceled and so quick to, like, cancel someone that really makes the conversation, like, watered down and bland and... I I really think it's important for people who are who have a platform to be able to like try to talk about things also to make mistakes and learn from it. I wish people could felt like they could say more and and then on top of it I you mentioned, you know, of course there's this whole Scientology element to Tom's life, but also like how much of a bubble is he living in? How how engaged is he politically if at all these days? I don't know. I wonder if he like kind of We've ta- I think we've talked about celebrities living in bubbles. So I wonder if he's in the bubble. But maybe maybe he'll come out of it and talk to Oh, he's in a bubble.
3: Response. I guarantee you he is in <laughs> a bubble. And one of the weirdest, most insulated bubbles in the world. But I don't think he's in the same bubble as everyone else. He's really in his own bubble. But I agree with you. Some filmmakers, we're going to talk about one later on the same podcast and his quotes. Some filmmakers are still comfortable with getting political. Uh, we certainly did on the last episode of this podcast, but yeah. like uh, some people really don't mind. But I think that there's just this ocean between like, that's because many, many, many avenues towards audiences has opened up room to be political and reach people. Whereas Tom is Cruise is trying to hit the four quadrants. And, and now that means not being political. And I think that's the tragedy you're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's also like a whole lot of interesting things to unpack with Top Gun Maverick, like both as filmmakers. Like, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what I read as in terms of where people assume I like movies because like, I love the Fast and the Furious franchise and I talk about it a lot, but then people frequently treat me as if I'm only into obscure art movies. Maybe that's the beard. I don't know. But like, you know, even if you're mostly into obscure art movies as an adult, like I started with Top Gun as a child. Like, at six, like, that was the movie that was the gateway drug to cinema for me as much as, like, you know, I didn't watch my first art movie until I watched, like, Down by Law on the Sundance channel when I was in eighth grade. So I have been 12, and I was like, what is this? What is this? This is not like anything else. And so, you know, my formative cinema experiences were things like Top Gun. I mean, I'll fully admit, like, I was really sad when Tony Scott killed himself. Like, I had an emotional reaction to it which I did not understand at the time how much I was emotionally invested in Tony Scott. And actually the ending of my indie feature is a shot for shot homage to a scene in Top Gun that no one has ever commented on because it's a little indie feature about relationships and Alzheimer's in West Virginia. But Tony Scott killed himself while we were shooting. And I wanted to sneak that in there because of how like, wow, I hadn't really thought about how much Top Gun had had an impact on me. So like, Thing about Maverick like also is interesting. Please to tell about me the homage of,
3: is a volleyball scene.
0: Now. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's okay. not, a, man. You can but be my I, wingman anytime. I mean, I just say that all the time to everybody. Yeah. I've I've like turned that out, but, um, oh man, I'm going to forget the name, but a, a really famous film professor at Pitt died and there are all these wonderful honorariums on Twitter this week and one of them had a quote of his that was like, I'm just a slut for movies and I, you know, And, uh, and it was in reference to some student asking about like, wait a minute, you saw what? And he was like, I'm just, I just, I just, I'm a slut for movies. I like them all like bring them on. Like, I don't have a favorite movie. I just like cinema. And, uh, I feel like that a lot of the time. And so, yeah, Top Gun Maverick, I felt like was really interesting to think about in terms of this quote, in terms of like, well, what are the things that make it worthwhile Like, what are the reasons you make a sequel other than pure money? Because obviously, the reason Paramount made this is to make money and no judgment. You know, I know people who work for Paramount, Paramount needs to keep their rent paid too. I'm not judging making money as a motivation for people, but it is really interesting, especially in a post. If you guys haven't seen T2's Train Spotting, it's really worth seeing because it's, you know, the original Train Spotting is about heroin as a drug, and T2's Train Spotting is about nostalgia as a drug. And it's like, Of every possible sequel there was to Train Spotting, it was the one that best captured the zeitgeist for me. Mm. And I felt like Top Gun Maverick was sort of interestingly at another end of the perspective where it very much kept itself unmediated. Like it's about regret and it's about the past haunting us and affecting our decisions. And it's about PTSD and it's about all these nuanced things that aren't what we expect from a sequel. Like it's about the way in which the past has shaped us, which is a whole lot more nuanced than we get from a Superman two. And like, so in a lot of ways it tries to beautifully reckon with that, but these are characters who are not addicted to nostalgia as a drug. These are not like social media addicts, but they're people who are still affected palpably by the past and are desperately trying to outrun the effects of that past in a way that I think is like. As storytellers, it's interesting to think about. I mean, another thing, this isn't what we initially kicked off with, but if you know, if anybody is Olivier Assayas fans, I always loved his 90s film, Irma Vep. And now he's turned it into an HBO show and I've been watching it and it's really great. Also, Small HD is getting like the world's biggest product placement there. The, uh, Irma mm-hmm. Vep is about a filmmaker and he's carrying around the Small HD monitor and it's getting all these close-ups. And I desperately want to know, Small HD, if you listen to the podcast, please tell me if you paid for that product placement or if you just got it for free because, wow, it is, like, prominent. It is, like, good for you guys if you just lucked into that. But it's great because it's also reckoning with, like, you know, why do we keep telling stories? What is it about us that draws back to the same stories? And Irma Vep is a remake of a series of films from 1920s when films were series before they were commonly features. And it's really trying to grapple with, like, well, there was this brief period of, like, the mid-20s, till the 2010s when the feature was the thing but now the serials the thing again which it was once before i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot here also can i just say about top gun the ending was the appropriate length my biggest criticism of modern features is you go into these action movies and they've got these like 45 fucking minute climaxes and it's goddamn motherfucking exhausting and it's like top gun's climax is like 17 minutes and you're like oh this is like the appropriate length for this final battle. And then you have the right number of twists, and then it's done. And you're like, oh, thank God. I could not have handled 45 minutes of like, and then another twist, and then another twist. Mm. And then the mountain is alive. And I would have been like, <laughs> Ugh.
2: Yeah, you get to a point where it's just like you're watching light flash across the screen, and you're just like, what is, what, 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 what why are we here again? Yeah, why? Um,
3: but, I, uh, I yeah, I mean, no one is to blame I, for that, but I'll. hold
0: on that thought. Oh, who do you, who do you blame for the exceptionally long climax? I blame Michael Bay, who I think is a skilled filmmaker, but really enjoys the third act more than I think is rational.
3: I feel like Christopher Nolan though, elevated that twisting the third act over and over and, and espousing the, the thesis of the film to an art form
2: where everybody was like, "Oh yeah, that's yeah."
0: Going like, hard well, at that Nolan. To me, Bring yeah, Nolan drama.
2: Nolan's notorious for having like the final acts of his movies be like kind of the worst part. I feel like like it, the towards the middle is usually like when stuff's really good, and then I'm always kind of like, "Man, this could this could have ended like three or four other times," and that has <laughs> been like the the Batman for me was like. God, how many times is this movie going to end? Totally. And then it ends on the worst possible one, where they're just like, like a long sequence of him and Catwoman. I guess no spoilers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> r- riding away on um, motorcycles, and it's just like, and they're just like, see ya, okay, bye. And and I'm like, there was like four other way cooler endings than that. But yeah, on the Tom Cruise thing, I, like the for me, I felt really kind of silly when I started hearing about a lot of the kind of backlashy stuff about it being sort of like a a right-wingish type like navy movie um because when i saw it i was on that amusement park ride like i i didn't i, I guess i just didn't really like think about it in that that depth and i mean i'm a you know i grew up on the first top gun much like charles and and many other people and like it was like co- it's cool it's cool for a, a little kid to see like jets and people flying in jets and like for a long time I wanted to fly jets and then you know someone put a camera in my hands but I think you know for me like I just went through this whole process of watching a lot of early Tom Cruise and Tom, early Tom Cruise was badass like he's always kind of you know he I like his more recent stuff or what like I I'm a big fan of the Mission Impossible franchise like I I'm I'm I really enjoy pretty much every single one of those but like, like Risky Business is like legit, a really cool movie. And like, I mean, it's just like, it's kind of funny to watch, like through his filmography, you can kind of watch like him slowly become Tom Cruise. And in that early phase of, of him, I just feel like, uh, I really like that version of Tom Cruise a lot more than like where we're at now, but like now, yeah, now it's like, he's like a, I mean, someone could like literally just be like, "Hey, he he's actually a like a cyborg, and we replaced him with a cyborg like ten years ago, and none of y'all noticed." And he's, you know, he's just printing money for us. That's all. And and the real-time cruise is like hanging out on an island somewhere. Like I wouldn't be that surprised if someone told me. Oh that. come on!
0: If they turned him into a cyborg, then they've got him in a basement poked up to tubes, right? <laughs> he doesn't get to live on an <laughs> island. the genetics. The truth, the
2: genetics.
0: <laughs> the truth yeah.
3: story. Be careful. People would believe this. Like if we made it oh a God. video <laughs> with like a happy conspiracy. effects. Yeah, like we could the, totally convince a big person. That time he Bob jumped Bob on
2: a couch is like for a true. malfunction. Mm-hmm. It's true. Tom Cruise truthers. I,
1: I do have to give the real Tom Cruise some credit for waiting to tell the story of Top Gun Maverick till they figured out what the story is and and a story worth telling. I think we may have touched on this a couple weeks ago on the podcast, but at least there's like a a story worth telling that also has roots in the original story. Meanwhile, I watched Jurassic World last night and I was like, why? Why are you telling this story? Lots of and 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 talk about a a whole film that was just built on nostalgia moments but not just jurassic park nostalgia ish moments but there was like weird star wars and indiana jones references and i was like why why they have
2: absolutely destroyed every last fiber of that franchise
1: i know except for
2: little kids my daughter loves there's like a animated show about it that my daughter like You know, she's like dinosaurs. My
3: kids are like asking all they're curious about it now because it's like around and in the ether. Well, and they did, they they, they have
2: blue, and blue is like the nice raptor. And now blue has a baby. And you know, my Uh, daughter wants (laughs) the baby and she wants the blue. You know, they franchised it, they they made it, they made it, uh, you know, um, merchandise, but totally
1: against the original story, though, in a way, (laughs) right. There was this one scene, and this is not a spoiler, but where Chris Pratt's character and Sam Neill's character are reunited. And of course, Sam Neill plays Dr. Grant in the original. He's great. He's like, these are not, you can't contain dinosaurs. And then they're sitting after like a big set piece of action and dinosaurs almost eating them. And Sam Neill's like, you're the guy who trains raptors. And Chris Pratt's like, yes. And then Sam Neill says, cool, or something like that. But I really <laughs> wanted him to just say like, that's so stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, like, yes, thank <laughs> you.
3: Yeah. Far so, appeal from the original book, which was about how ridiculously bad this would go, they become trainers of Raptors. I just want to throw out there on like the Tom Cruise and, and Smart and the way that this franchise changed and your point about Top Gun Maverick, you guys saying like original Top Gun, really good movie. Tony Scott, great filmmaker and, and occupies a special place in the pantheon and in nostalgia. And like, and I think that the truth is the second, the second movie, they, they approached it the same way. And in speaking with the editor on it, it's like Tom Cruise is just exacting. Like he is the final word on all things, Top Gun Maverick, and it Mm -hmm. has to be, and they reshoot and reshoot. And there's, tons of footage and it's a year plus process. And it's truly like everything has to be the best possible version of what they can do. And they have the ability to do that, which is so rare that you can afford to do to, to approach it that way. But even many times when people can, they don't. So it's a testament to that. Mm-hmm. I'll also just throw out there that like Tom Cruise was a legitimately like crazy person and, <laughs> and everything about Scientology is pretty bad and the stuff that's going on there is pretty bad and there's no doubt about it like it's not about (laughs) like i'll be the one to say it like it's not just about uh what faiths people practice that's all well and good and none of my business it's that the institution of it is like really ruins people's lives (laughs) and he's the benef he's the benefactor of that so that just just i don't want to talk tom cruise without putting that out there but he is incredible at what he does
0: those things. I also want to, I do want to point out that Top Gun Maverick does attempt to reckon with some of the changes in the world. And like, you know, I'm wary. I'm specifically wary of propaganda. Like I'm really bummed that my daughter isn't a Paw Patrol mm-hmm. now because it seems very much like propaganda to me. And
2: I, I love that. I love that take. I haven't thought of that. Uh, but oh, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah, it absolutely is. Like yeah. once you see it, you're like, oh my God, this is totally, that's not how cops act, Chase. Like, that is like not how your cops, cops Your, your, are your kid's are like,
2: I want to be a cop, but I also want to be a dog. A <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, it's associate. yeah, chases. Anyway. But, um, and you know, so I have some issues with like the original Top Gun and like it, and like, you know, all of that. But like, there is some interesting stuff of like growth in Top Gun Maverick. Like for instance, age appropriate love interest for Maverick. Like literally, if that movie had been made 10 years earlier, Maverick would have been dating a 30 year old. Yeah, and Maverick was dating a fifty-one-year-old, which is nine years younger than Tom Cruise. But that's like significantly better than if that movie was made ten years earlier. And we know that because we have the movies Tom Cruise was making ten years earlier for reference, and he was dating twenty-eight and thirty-two-year-olds. And it was like the culture changed, and was like, actually, guys, we've decided that that's gross, and, and we no longer want to consume it as a culture. And like, it just you know, it helps when you cast Jennifer Connelly. (laughs) Like she's wonderful, but like, it was like, oh, okay. Age appropriate love interests. Like nice love this. And like, you know, appropriate love scene between mature couple. Like I was like, okay, this is not what I was expecting out of a Top Gun sequel. And yeah, there's interesting stuff in Top Gun Maverick moving on to whether or not there will be interesting stuff in another sequel. That's taken a long time, but we don't (laughs) know if it will evolve with the times or not. James Cameron is out on record saying, "Stop bitching about my movie being three hours." I know you guys all binge watch twelve hour TV shows. Shut your ugly faces. That's a direct quote from his Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Shut your ugly I sh- faces.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think oh, he said man. that part.
3: He didn't really spare. He didn't <laughs> spare much, and he goes on and talks about his kids. Like it really turns into an old man rant of like my my kids are watching these things for eight hours and like He's go been- to the bathroom. Has he been hanging out with
0: with Eastwood? Is that that what's going on? (laughs) I mean, before we talk about anything else, we have to talk about the fact that this is all deliberate trolling to get attention. This is the same reason Scorsese says shit about Marvel movies when he isn't. Like, have we heard anything about Scorsese saying shit about Marvel in the last two years? No, because he doesn't have a movie in the movie theaters. So this is all, I have a movie coming out, and I want a press cycle. That's all this is. Scorsese does it. Cameron does it.
1: And James Cameron made the original long movie, Titanic, which was on two VHSs because I had them and I was only allowed to watch the first VHS.
0: <laughs> oh, whoa. Is the second one sexier or something? No, when that's the, when, the... when the infamous
2: uh, paint me like one of your French girls. No,
1: the weird thing is that's in the first VHS. It's oh, really? really? stinking that happens. I mean, it's essentially, in a way, two movies. Uh, one is a happy ending if you just stop at the... End of the. Oh, so your one. parents were
0: cool with this sex stuff. They just didn't want you to watch a bunch of people die. Yes, they didn't want they didn't want you to see
2: the part where someone's body hits the propeller and they flop oh. around like a rag doll.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, actually, I exactly. I respect your parents on this one. Good call, Gigi's parents. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll I'll let them know. But th- you know that's a two and a half hour long movie, and now that Going was- with the
3: Wind might have been. The original long
1: movie. The original long movie. <laughs> no, 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 no. But
0: no, Godfather. if we're talking about that, that is a different animal. Because let's talk talk about the most important thing here, which is human biology. You better not be making a movie that breaks a three hour barrier without an intermission and a potty right. break, because yes. we like, had those that back is,
3: then. yeah.
0: But theaters don't want to do that anymore because they view it as wasted time. And theaters don't even want to do a three hour movie anymore because they get more. T- you know, you pay the same for a three hour movie and a two hour movie, but theaters can book two three-hour screenings a night, like a 6.30 and a 9.30 or a 7 and a 10, and the 10 won't sell as well. But a two-hour movie or an hour and a half, they can do a 6.30 and an 8 and a 9.30, and then maybe uh, for the real latecomers, like an 11, right? And so theaters are really reluctant to do the three-hour.
1: I do have to make a plug for an app called RunP where you uh sync mm. up the app with your I love the uh, I, Yeah, I love this. And it tells I you know it, what it like, is. <laughs> buzzes. Yeah, exactly. You're like, this is the app I didn't know that I absolutely needed. It buzzes when it's like a really lull in the story and you can use the restroom and then it'll tell you what happens and you can come in. So like you know that when like you sync it up when the, the title cards are coming and then it's like and then Maverick will go on a walk on a beach. You can pee
3: now. I like when, then... when you, the old thing of people come back and be like, what I miss? Be like, nothing. Who cares? Like, just watch yeah. the movie. You'll figure it out. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, like, don't bother me. Why are we talking about this? I, funny story about going to pee. I took my kids to see Lightyear a few weeks ago and I, <laughs> I had to go to the bathroom and walked out and I missed, I missed the big moment being uh-huh. the the reason that the movie is like that they put warnings and signs because there's like a same-sex kiss. And I came back and I was like, oh I missed it. I should like post like I walked out during the, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: troll. Oh, um, I thought you make... missed the big moment where he turned into light.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, where he turned into the toy on Andy's shelf. No, we're gonna leave the memes of that movie aside for now. I wanna bring up though, before we go too far afield from James Cameron and his quotes, that he added another <laughs> A doozy here. He said, the trolls will have it that nobody gives a shit and they they can't remember the characters' names or one damn thing that happens in the movies, Cameron said of the backlash to the original film. Then they see the movie again and go, oh, okay, excuse me, let me shut the fuck up right now. So I'm not worried about that. So what he's talking about there is something we've talked about before, which is that people are like, can you remember? There's this meme, it's like, can you remember anyone's name in Avatar? (laughs) <laughs> like the and that the the plot was was basic and all these things. I think we we did an episode that we even called it like this James Cameron's Waterloo. Um, because we were like, is this kind of like, is are there cracks in the facade? Because the guys pretty much made a good movie every time out, objectively speaking. Like <laughs> it's like hard to find yeah. flaw. It, it, and yet it does feel like, man, this is gonna be over three hours. And like the first avatar started to feel like things were getting a little dicey there. And yeah, and and so, and but further in the article, he also talks about how he's already finished three, he can't wait to make four, he might have another director do four and five, but probably not. So it's a very, like, Charles is 100% right. Like, this is his PR tour, and he's riling people up. But two things. One, he's feeding the trolls, for sure. And I say that as somebody who can be a troll. Like, if you are acknowledging the exact complaints of the internet community, You're emboldening them to continue to make all the complaints in the world because all they want is to be heard. They just want to know that like James Cameron knows what they said about his movie. So he's it's kind of like like when I read it, I was like, no, James, don't do it. Like, don't tell them you're listening, because now who knows what this like unleashes in the you know, we have a problem with with fans and trolls like getting really nasty and ugly. Um, There's a kind of trolling that I think is funny. And a kind that I think is awful. you know, I think in some way he's he's emboldening them. but on the other hand, I just bring up that, you know, yeah, it's like he's really
2: he's really all in on this thing, and it feels
0: yeah, there's uh, like
2: there's intense. like four of them on the way, right? like he's he's making a ton of these.
3: Yes, yeah, th- third one's in the can, and there's a four and five that he's planning that he says he will likely also direct. That's just a lot in this day and age of of movies and theatrical release and like he's going hard
2: yeah and if they're all three hour, i mean you know you're you're like competing with lord of the rings at that point like the extended editions Mm -hmm. like that's a lot of content i i'm curious (laughs) i would like to what what is y'all's ideal like what's the what's the longest a a movie can be before you kind of start going "Ah, maybe i don't want to watch that tonight like what's, what's sort of, cause for me, I kind of like 12 minutes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't So go one on episode YouTube. of Paw Patrol. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, when he says, um, you know, y'all, you, you, binge watch, you know, 12 hours of TV or whatever. Like the thing is for me, like, I don't like, I don't, I don't do that really. I don't like to binge watch TV shows. Like I'll watch like an episode and then try to put on a movie or something like But, but for me on a, you know, on a Wednesday night, if I'm like, oh, I see this movie that I've been, my friends keep telling me I I need to watch and now it's streaming, but it's two hours and 50 minutes. I'm like, man, do I really want to be like this tired tomorrow? Like, I don't know for me if it's a theatrical experience, which Avatar, the original, the first Avatar, uh, I only saw it in theaters. I was skipping my college classes and for whatever reason I, I went to it like four times in 3D. <laughs> and I didn't even really like it that much. I think I just was more interested in the skipping class aspect of it. But I, you know, that movie was definitely way cooler in theaters. And I could definitely I, I'm, I'm way more game to sit for three hours. I do also agree on the necessity of a, you know, intermission of some sort. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I the thing about Avatar now is, it's just like, watching the first Avatar, like I remember one time I tried to watch it on like TBS on a Sunday, and it was like 2 p.m., and I was like kind of falling in and out of a nap, and it was just like, this movie doesn't work in this format at all, and so, you know, obviously, you know, he's going to have to really make sure people go to the theater, and if they don't, I don't really know if, you know, I, I don't know. It's cool that it's like it's a movie about like, you know, preserving nature and respecting nature. And I've heard him, you know, talk a lot about that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I like that aspect of the the franchise. But dang, I really don't feel like I need five of those things um, yeah. personally.
1: I, I definitely am with you in terms of the scrolling through choosing a movie and when I see it's like two and a half hours I'm like no thank you there's actually a 90 minute movie section in Netflix that I purposely navigated to the other night because I was like it's too late like I don't want to sit here and In unless it's totally warranted. And I think, Todd, you mentioned The Godfather, where it's like, that's one where it's like, we turn off the lights, we turn off the cell phones, we bring out the popcorn, and we just sit there and watch a damn good movie. Yeah, it's
2: it's an event. You're making an event out of it.
1: Exactly. But rarely is is anything that good that consistently for over two hours, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. I I mean, any three-hour movie, I would say at least, 60 to 70% of them, they could have cut a lot of it out and it would have been better. Like, I just really feel that way. Ultimately, there's just nothing better to me than like a 90 minute movie that's just from start to finish, the pacing's right, the story's locked down. It just feels like there wasn't a wasted moment. Like, that's my favorite kind of movie is like just something that you throw it on, and for 90 minutes, you get a complete truncated story that just feels right. And um, George, Charles, yeah. what's, you, what's y'all's take on? Well, a there was a great, uh,
0: you know, um, what's his face, the handsome guy that everyone wants to date from Saturday Night Live. One of his last SNL skits was about give me those short Netflix movies, and it was just yeah. a rap about like looking for short movies on Netflix, <laughs> and then all of his friends making fun of him because all of his, mo- you know, he did King of Staten Island, which is like
1: seven Pete hours Davidson. long
0: or something. Pete Davidson, yeah, tall with baggy eyes, and you know, there is something. I mean, my thing. Is the thing people don't tend to appreciate about a really well-crafted 90-minute to minute to two-hour movie is people are like, and I think it's a fair criticism to be like, every time I see a three-hour movie, I feel like it could have been cut down. But the bigger problem is that cutting down should have happened before you started shooting. And mm. it's these sprawling mm-hmm. scripts. And so you're like, and I'll watch the movie and I'll be like, yeah, there's actually nothing you can cut because you backed yourself into a corner where you need all of this setup to explain why this happens. But all of that setup was boring as shit. So I'm stuck with all this boring ass setup to explain why this thing happens. And you needed to compress that in the script stage to get that to one scene of setup that does Mm -hmm. the job, but you spread it over four scenes and you're stuck with it all now. And that's the thing is that the hard step is like getting it there before post. I'm vicious. My wife doesn't understand this, but like I turn movies off regularly about 20. I'll give movies like a first act, like 20, 25 minutes in. And then I turn them off because I'm like, you don't even deserve 90 minutes. If I'm 20 minutes in and there's not a character or a setup or a situation that's like intriguing or fresh or like feels real or something to me, if you're not in control of your tone, if you haven't done one thing that surprised me, I'm like, I don't feel like you deserve the rest of the time. I'd rather like start a different movie.
2: I'm completely the same way. And I'm even more so that way with shows because... Like there's so I, my biggest pet peeve is like, yeah, season one is is OK. But in season two kind of sucks, too. But if you can get to season three, it's the greatest show of all time. And I'm like, I will never watch that in a million years. That's I do not have that of kind of time. Life. In my, yeah, I do. Days. not the care. Two,
0: There are two exceptions to that one is Parks and Rec, where the first season was legitimately kind of bad, but I didn't watch it. And then someone was like someone was like, oh, no, they retooled. They got a new writer's room and just start with season two. Don't even bother with season one. And I don't know that I've ever gone back and watched season one, but starting from season two, Parks and Rec kind of rocked. I I didn't mind
2: season one. It's not, but a comedy show is a whole different animal. Like I'm talking about like when you're like, I tried to get through the wire and obviously, you know, everyone loves the wire. It's a, it's a very beloved show, but there was like, I can't remember which season it was. Um, It's two. <laughs>
0: yeah, I love, it. I, I love two so much. I, I, do it was, yeah, I do. too. I am which, which, alone.
2: Which season was it with like the shipping containers and all that? Two. two. Okay, so I
3: got it's to me. that. I am the fan
0: club. Like, you have I, met the entire fan club. I'm president. I'm treasurer. It's me.
3: <laughs> I actually I like two, too. but I, but yeah, I I what I think is you. My answer to this question
0: is that is
3: two twofold, and I think it's a really good one, especially. For people who are sort of thinking about like how they make their stories and like these days, I really think you have to go as economic and short as possible because you're not James Cameron. Unfortunately, you may become him. But my personal thing is like I I will complain about things being long, but if if they're good, I don't have any problem with it. If they're good right. to me. You know, and that, and no one can hit that sweet spot because nobody knows, and nor should they try because I'm a strange person with strange taste. But what I'm saying is just from my own perspective, like if it works for me, I don't mind. Like the time can go very fast, like, and I, I can enjoy, and sometimes think like I kind of wish there was more, you know, like ups and downs, slow periods, sure. But the problem is that when I watched The Wire, there was while there was starting to be a lot to compete for my time, there was nowhere near as much as there is now. I do not think, I do not know if I could make it now. Just because I I went slow through that show and it was it's such a thoughtful, careful, intentional, like beautiful piece, but it's not, whenever people say this stuff, like you can't do such and such for today and that's become like a meme unto itself, but it's really like pacing is so different. There's so mm-hmm. many demands on our time. Even texting wasn't as pervasive then at, when I was watching it as it was now. Like, you can't get a second. Like, And I think that that's why, like, if you're setting out and looking at the landscape and thinking about what to do, you really should aim for that 90 to 110 and make it like taught as hell because people have so many things to look at or think about or be distracted by. And episode to episode. I've fallen off on shows. The idea of someone saying to me a show, like it takes a while to get into it now. It's like, it's almost, it doesn't even matter. Like I'm not going to even bother. Like if, if <laughs> it has to be so. like I've fallen off on shows I liked because I was like, I don't feel like I have time to keep up anymore. Like the first few seasons were great. I'm done. You know, I, I so I think it's a tough, tough, tough environment. And if you're James Cameron, like, yeah, go for it. Like make ten. Four hour long movies and tell us all the fuck off if we don't like it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> your, that's what you're allowed to do, I guess. But James Cameron's um, like, you'll watch it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, watch it. He's probably <laughs> right. And like, it's like when Quentin Tarantino made even, even um, Hateful Eight, like, I was so excited. Like, I was like, I don't mind that I'm sitting down for all this time. Like, give it to me in like the full format projected on film. I'll go out for intermission. I love it. Like, but. Yeah, that is such a tough sell. Charles talked oh, about every, everyone no, like- who Why?
2: who has seen that movie too. I, okay, that's the one I haven't seen. Hateful Eight, which is insane to me, and and really kind of a good signpost to like this whole conversation for me. Like, I haven't seen it, and that's because everyone I've talked to about it like kind of goes like, "Oh yeah, it's kind of a slog, but it's pretty good,"
0: and I'm just like, "Okay, yikes." <laughs>
1: That's really, the worst thing slog. you can say.
0: <laughs> I, I I watched it and I watched its extended version on Netflix, which is like six hours long. Oh my God. Uh, it, it's really good. I really like it. Okay. I like well, Westerns. I'm, I'll check it. No, I'm I like,
2: like Westerns too. I'll check it out. I, I need to check yeah, yeah, it out. I've been saying that since these, it came out though.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's Kurt Russell and Samuel L. Jackson in a Western snowed in in a cabin and like you've got. Yeah, I mean, it's great. <laughs> music, play the
3: music I, is a reason alone.
0: Yeah. And uh, they got the, the, the crew gift was a snow globe, which is like so oh. like it's a custom made snow globe uh, anyway. But like for me, like I love a 90 minute movie. I will love a two and a half hour movie that doesn't have every moment land if your vibe is good enough. But vibe and charisma are really hard to do on a low budget. So I'm trying to think offhand of like like you know like uh Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like two and a half hours and I love it and it could have been thirty minutes longer because you've got Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Oh, I would have sat there for,
3: for six hours. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. easily driving around but LA like, in the seventies.
0: Oh my god,
1: like but what you have, if, what you have is some a director who has his reps in and has yeah. a budget and has actors who can act totally. And I kind of want to tie this back into like indie emerging filmmakers who are making shorts. I think if you you can really embrace that less is more and you can tell do like being economical about it and your storytelling will make you uh will make your project usually so much better. Like be in that early scripting stage. Like I'd rather have a three minute amazing short than like another 15 to 20 minute short film. That is like meandering, and I'm like, "Why am I here? I don't get the vibe. I'm so bored. When does this end? You know, like leave me wanting more." And I'm saying this because I had to watch a bunch of short shorts recently, where I'm like, "Is this a is this a rough cut or oh this is this is the short? Got it, got
3: it." This is such a good point because we were talking about endings before, and I mentioned Christopher Nolan, and you mentioned Michael Bay, Charles, and like Gigi, you're bringing it back in such a meaningful way because. There's the old thing, right? Like, get in late, get out early. And that's just never a bad idea. And if you get to the point where you have made so many movies and you have such a devoted audience and you have major movie stars, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, you can linger forever. You can take your time and screw around and it doesn't matter. But we should not look at those movies and those movies pacing as the model because that's what I kind of hate sometimes with the screenwriting books and how they'll like break down these beloved like you know they'll they'll put godfather in and they'll like talk about how it's perfect and the, and it's like maybe but sometimes you have the power to do things that, that like it's you know what i mean like you you can reverse engineer it sometimes to look like it's all like plotted exactly right but mm-hmm. i think the reality is you have to focus way more at the front end on am i keeping people engaged all the time yeah well and not, even just
2: even just that moment of someone deciding to watch your thing like if someone if if like my best friend said hey, hey I have a 25 minute short film can you watch it it would take me a while to get through it I'd probably have to watch you know in five five ten minute chunks unless it was really 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 good and yeah I mean I think it's just again everything kind of competing for our time and attention and all that sort of stuff it's just like you know you gotta these are the days of like you you can't really have a wasted moment in your your thing and um on that note I was just curious so jurassic world dominion 146 <laughs> minute runtime for shame for shame they that did not be need to be that long that is
0: have you also seen
2: it i have not but i just know i when i saw the trailer no, i, agree and I saw you. chris I pratt also agree sticking his arm out and i was just like i no, hell no i'm not What's watching
1: 46 minutes stay of that. <laughs> dinosaur stay
2: i'm chris pratt and yes. you're gonna stay um yeah, uh, you know, I just had to bring that up that uh, Jurassic World Dominion is over two and a half hours long.
0: That is a whole, that's a lot. All right, so moving on, let's talk about some positivity of like building community with your filmmaking peers through Backyard Cinema. Yeah. Uh, Gigi.
1: Oh, I'll kick this off. So I you know, moved to LA at the top of the pandemic and started making sketches and shorts and stuff. And my only experience screening anything was either releasing it online or going to a film festival, which, you know, you make something and then it's like a year and a half later, you screen it and maybe, but a friend of mine who I weirdly met at a film festival told me about this backyard screening monthly thing. And, and since, and ever since then I've started to like hear little bits and pieces about these other backyard screenings. So the first one that I went to, I actually submitted short of mine to screen. I didn't tell anyone except for a friend and that I went with the one who had told me about it. And I just like went to test out to see if this short was going to work in front of an audience. And I, it was just, it was at this place called Show and Tell. These two comedy dudes, a guy named Sethward and a guy named Kyle Heff, they, they put it on and they've been putting it on for nine years now. And the whole MO behind it is to like get people creating things and sharing things and supporting each other. And I was like, this is so lovely. Of course, when I was screening my short, I stood in the back and like just, wanted to see if the audience would laugh at all because it was going to, I was determining whether I should even submit it to festivals or just release it online and bury it, you know, as one does. And it was just really refreshing to one, be with an audience, especially after the pandemic, but to see a community of filmmakers and sketch people and people shooting with whatever they can to make something and try something. And sometimes they were trying like testing things out and it was kind of more in a rough cut phase. Other times it was like, these are a bunch of little sketches that I put together back to back to back to back. And I was just, I was like, man, this is awesome. And, and I think now more than ever, we need to be like encouraging people to make things and come together and, uh, and celebrate just the, it's hard to make anything. So I love, I just loved it and wanted to give it a little shout out. And I don't know if you guys have had any of this sort of underground screening experience, but, um, yeah,
2: that sounds so cool. makes me like, so, fun. so you said you found it through a friend.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine, all the ones that I've gone to have like very generic names like, oh, show and tell or Sunday fun day. And I'm like, oh, this these are just things. And then I'm realizing that they're actually like events that people put on regularly to like celebrate comedy or making things. And so, yeah, a friend mentioned it. I emailed the guys and they're like, yeah, we'll screen it. Yeah. So it's very word of mouth heavy. That's how they get the word out, I guess. And on Instagram.
2: But that's cool because that means like the the community there is like authentic. It's just people being like, hey, this thing's cool. Come check it out, which is, you know, instead of it just being like marketed or something a, a ton. Yeah. Um, I need to, I need to do more kind of looking for that kind of stuff around here. It feels like there's not a lot, but I'm sure there is. Like, I'm sure there's stuff around me that I need to. Yeah. So, or,
0: I mean, the thing I always try and remember is if I'm looking for something and not finding it, that usually means I should just start it myself. There you go. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of times in my life where I'm like, I would like X to be happening and no one's doing it. And then I'm like, oh, oh, I guess I'm supposed to now. And the (laughs) other cool thing about this is, as I try and say to my students all the time, like gatekeepers never open a door to let you in. Gatekeepers open a door because you're doing something cool outside and they want to come see what it is. And it's like, if you want to get into anywhere, unless you're like incredibly handsome and already wealthy and and very good looking, (laughs) like then you might be able to just get in. But like for the most part, like you just have to be doing cool shit somehow, like somehow you just have to be doing cool shit all the time. And so like, yeah, if you get a screening thing going with your friends very quickly, it's amazing how much when you start something small, people just, I remember when I was first starting my production company with my partner and like, it was two of us. And then like within a week, like it was four of us. And then like three other friends were like, Hey, we hear you doing a thing. Can we just start like working out of your office? Cause we like. Feel like we'd be more productive if we had somewhere to go every day. And then we blinked and it was like 20 regular people around all the time, just because we were doing a thing. And I feel like my friends who've done screening series like this, it's been the same way of like they were like, well, we don't know who's gonna come. And like the first time it was seven, and then like, you know, a year later it was like 40 people in the backyard all the time. And like those kind of low-level network events are like vital to how you grow as an artist. Because one of the biggest problems in film is, you know. It's super lonely. It's It's insanely lonely and it can take years to get anything made. Or am I just
1: lonely out here?
0: No, it's just crazy. Well, Joseph Kaczynski is such a crazy story of like, he became a big studio director. He went to architecture school and then his bio on IMDb is like, he left architecture school. He was an adjunct in architecture at MIT and then he started doing commercials and then he got Tron Legacy and that's the bio. And I'm like, what happened in those 10 years that got him Tron Legacy? Like what, what was that 10 year journey between like leaving architecture school and getting a major studio picture? Cause that's a mystery to me. Yeah. Or, but, uh, like,
2: or Colin Trevorrow. Who's like, he, he made a mediocre indie film and then an s- immediately bad. Indie yeah. Film, like and, a then, terrible, and then started immediately ruining beloved franchises. Um, <laughs> well, I mean,
0: no, he, his family is childhood friends with, Kathleen Kennedy. Like, he grew up in Kathleen uh, Kennedy's house.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. I've, always, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always had a sneaking suspicion that he might. Well, that explains it.
0: Oh, yeah. Because um, safety some not guaranteed. Happened. Safety not guaranteed. You should never be allowed to work again after that. That movie was awful. The act, the performance. <laughs> I turned like, it off. No. Oh, I had to finish never it because I saw it in the theater. And it, like, the acting is, like, the acting by people who are normally good is atrocious, which means the director didn't know how to shape it. And, like, there's a whole scene with a crane where I'm like, oh, you had a crane for a day and didn't know what to do with it. So you just put it in every shot for no reason. <laughs> like, it's like that movie is gibberishly bad. It's incoherent. Oh, God. And then apparently that was good enough to get him. Yeah, no. Like, there's so many better indie movies. Can that I get tell get made you something and-
1: embarrassing? Yes. He went to my high school. And oh, so I... Ooh. Piedmont High School, go Highlanders. I dm'd him and asked him to go get coffee but he never got back
3: to him <laughs> uh, that's no, you embarrassing the right thing. you should be proud did the right thing Shoot, that, no, you got out, of your, those you got out cold, of your comfort zone yeah those cold emails or dms are often like you people should send those because for a hundred that are just annoying and ignored there might be one or two that help you learn something or move forward so people should should do that that was smart of
0: you. which Which reminds me, Tori Amos went to my high school, and I should probably not DM her because that's probably not useful, but it is a good (laughs) reminder.
3: I just want to throw out there, because I've talked about it before, but I know Gigi's also familiar, that Channel 101 started essentially as like a backyard screening. And it was just these people getting together who were doing that exact thing. They were like, and it was like 2005, 2004 or something. But like, so everything was different. There were stagecoaches instead of cars. But like you, (laughs) you, there were just people gathering in like a Thai restaurant, screening stuff. The people who would go on and become like the Lonely Island and stuff were were doing it. But like, they were just like, we shot a fun little thing. Let's watch it. Let's critique it. Let's have an assignment. Let's, and it slowly built into a community and it slowly became formalized and then really like built over time. But that spirit of just getting together, having a community of making things, creating a deadline, creating like a workflow, collaborating with the people you meet there. That's like, that's maybe one of the better things that comes out of a film school as well. So it's like, if (laughs) if you can create it, like, somewhere else where you get those collaborative learning experiences, you don't get the same. But sometimes you do get instructors because like when I came around into the world of Channel 101, there were like senior members who had been doing it long enough and who had sniffed real jobs and like had real pitches. And so like if I went out to do something, I could ask those people I'd met and they could help me to some extent and, and that sort of thing. And I, it, I saw it work for so many people, so many careers built out of getting into a community like that, working the, the the edges of it towards the middle, getting better at what you do, and like making tons and tons and tons of content, like so those things are a real avenue, I think, to getting better at this.
1: I used to have sort of like an ego around being the organizer, and I think it's because I like had a different career where I was like put in a box of being adjacent to the creative and sorting supporting creatives. And and to your point, Charles, about like sometimes you want something and then you're like, oh actually I'm just gonna have to do it myself. Recently I felt really like good about putting on what I call the Paul McCartney hat, which is like the person who's like, come on guys, let's do this, let's make something. Um, because I watched the Beatles documentary and I was like, oh, he's just rallying people and and there, you know, not only do you have the opportunity, if you're producing something like this, to put on, to put your own work out there, but you're lifting up other people. And there's a lot of like cross-pollination. Like when I screened at Show and Tell, this guy named Mark Sipka, who's a very funny actor who has the best mullet in the world, he reached out to me after and said, my short was like one of his favorite things that he's ever seen there. And I was like, thanks, man. We got coffee. I was like, I want to cast you in something. I cast him in like a janky little sketch I made. And then I also cast him in like the final episode of my channel 101 series, found out he had amazing chemistry with this other comedian named Madison Lanacy, And now I'm like, I have, I'm like, I know I need to shoot a short with these two because they're so great, but I would have never known this had I not like started to make things and just get those reps in and collaborate and, and find people that I jive with. So shout out to Mark Sipka too and your mullet. It's great.
0: <laughs> All right. Should we wrap it up with tech news? Yeah, I think so. So we're going to do a follow-up tech news. So if you're like, I've already heard enough about the LAO and nanomorphs. Peace out. We'll see you next week. You know who we are. <laughs> but secondly, if not, Todd and I are going to talk a little bit further about the Lao nanomorphs because I had a lot of fun shooting them on this job. I shot them as B camera. A camera was an Alexa with Atlas, oh, Orion's. Nice. Okay. And B camera was a DJI 4D with Lauen anamorphs. And I so, was like,
2: so yeah. I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it with you because we we talked a lot together about the the Ronin 4D when it came out, and my biggest beef was the weight capacity for the lenses or whatever. <laughs> And so I saw on your on your video that you were using it with the Rona
0: 4D. So I imagine that was pretty sick. It was ridiculous. I kind of wanna shoot a whole feature. I remember the first I was a gaffer on a feature in 2006 and we got light panels. And I remember bringing out light panels and I was like, I want to do a whole movie we light the whole thing LED, which like now we do all the fucking time. <laughs> right. But like I remember that moment of like holy shit, what? What are these? And they don't get hot and i can glue them to the ceiling oh my god this was kind of that like i was like oh my god like i can do an anamorphic feature just on the 4d with these and be incredibly happy with the footage um, um you know. so
2: now these are these are mft right
0: they're they're they don't have an no they, they're native d-mount you can oh, get them oh, mft oh. as well okay but it was a native d-mount which really tells me lawa is like we know where our bread's going to be buttered interesting these are going to be Pop. So D mount is DJI's lens mount.
2: So they they they're going straight for like they knew they knew exactly what was going on with that
0: with the 4D. I wonder or I wonder if they were going MFT and then it was easy enough for them to add a D mount. Because the what it was last October now it was announced. These came out in May. Six months is probably enough time to add a D mount to a lineup. Right. I'm thinking. They have
2: they guess. have EF on the way, right? I think I remember reading that somewhere.
0: I don't think so. I think that's uh, too shallow. I think too, it's too all... I think they'll have E mount, because you can do Super 35, because they only cover Super 35. Right. So yeah. I, I think they have E on the way, but I don't think it'll be EF, because these are really, like, flush lenses. I love it.
2: I love it. when I, when I So, like, there's been... You know, I'm obsessed with low-budget anamorphics. It's, like, it's kind of an obsession for me. I go through... Um, little seasons where i you know i'll I'll go buy one of those, like an, an old adapter for projector lenses or whatever. and you know I'll try to work that way for a little while, and it I, then I decide it's way too much trouble, and I stop doing it and then and then I start googling, you know what's the the newest like, and I keep waiting for a cheap anamorphic that doesn't look like ass. And there's a couple out there that are close ish. There's like this one, I think it's like great joy that just popped on the market with (laughs) funny name, but it's like, I think, I think they have a, you know, uh, at, at the very least, I know there's like one or two lenses out in their line, but even those are, you know, they're, they're in the four ish, five ish grand range, I think. And, and, you know, the, the, the flares are ridiculous. They're like super blue. All the SLR magic stuff is super blue. And I kind of just like, I, I just, you know, what's the, the, um, Sire? they have those that are also very, very blue. And for me with anamorphic, it's so much more personally about the, the field of view and the, you know, the, the Boca and all that, uh, than it is really about the flares because you can just, you can tape a piece of fishing line on the front of your lens and you get some flares. I'm not really that big of a deal. Uh, I'm not that, Precious about the flares, but it is a nice little aspect. So for me, when I saw these um the the Lawas, the the flare just looks really kind of almost exactly what you'd want. Similar to I don't know which Atlas lenses you were using, but I got a chance to do a couple gigs on the silver editions of the Atlas lenses, which takes the the flare from the original set and and makes it kind of this like ambery whitish color that I was super yeah. into. I love that look. I'm not like against the blue flare thing, but I just I feel like it can be a bit distracting and it can kind of limit you creatively in some scenarios. But from what I saw with these Lawas, it seemed like they were like like the colors of the flares are are kind of and I know there's like a, a orange
0: one and a blue one, right? There's an orange one and a blue one and then just this week they dropped a silver one. Oh hell yeah. And the silver one is going to be a neutral flare. I was shooting blue flare. I'm old, so I'm very used to anamorphics having blue flare, but I remember I was talking to Art Adams at Aerie when they were dropping the Signature Primes, and the Signature Primes deliberately went for really neutral colored flares, was their whole thing. They were like, we want our flares colorless, because we feel like in HDR, colored flares are more distracting than they used to be in SDR. In SDR, you got a lens flare and it's got a little color, it's fine, but once you start cranking that brightness up in HDR, a lot of your flares tend to be high brightness. And then you add color to that and it gets really disorienting. Yeah. So as we move to more, yeah. So as you get to more HDR deliverables, uh, we think people are going to want less color in their flares. So the Signature Primes, they were like, we worked really hard on colorless flares. And you're right, the Atlas, I we were actually shooting non-silver Atlas. So they were there were some color in our flares and we quite liked it. And so it it was nice. But even the blue Laowas were not that blue. They were like a little blue but it wasn't like Panavision, Super Speed, Anamorphic from the '70s, Blue Streaks. It was like, oh, it's a little touch of blue and a little touch of green that kind of worked for me. But honestly, if I were if I were buying, I would probably buy the Silvers yeah. because you know I I, I think that that's, that's HDR deliverable option.
2: And that's where like my perspective on the the Blue Flare thing mostly lies. Like I think renting, if you're going to rent lenses, having per per job the choice to go blue or not or whatever totally fine and like i love the look of classic blue flares but it's just not always right so if i'm gonna buy something i'm gonna i want something with more naturalistic colors in the flares and so that that's why these things popped up and i was like i don't have a micro ford thirds camera right now so i hope i would love it if they could eventually drop
0: something for well i'm sure they'll do fuji x
2: well i do have that so that would be nice
0: yeah, um, and they might even have Fuji X now, okay. But they will do X, I'm sure, because Lawa usually covers X. But it's always going to be those flatter mounts. So it's going to be, yeah, you're going to end up. It's, they're probably not going to do EF because the the flange focal distance is so shallow from like the back of the lens body before the mount starts. Right. Uh, I don't think there's room for an EF in there. Um, well,
2: yeah, but I mean, in terms of actual, like, you you know, being an owner of anamorphic. Lenses, I feel like that's kind of one of the better options out there right now. I mean, maybe if you, I mean, if you can fork it out for the for the Atlas set, go ahead. But yeah, I think uh, visual quality wise, it's the best option I've seen.
0: I mean, I was astounded at the visual quality for fifteen hundred dollars. I was like, fifteen hundred dollar lenses shouldn't look this good when they're not anamorphic, and then when they are anamorphic, I'm like, okay, you guys are doing something crazy cool here and like Lawa, i like Lawa. they make cool stuff but their previous move was not we look the nicest their previous move was we're the most comfortable being weird so the two things you would have previously known Lawa for were their probe lens and their zero distortion wide angle lenses both of which are like we're a little out of the norm we're really wide angle or we're probe but And so, like, image quality is not the most important. They both look nice. I've shot with both. I've intercut both with nicer lenses. Like, they hold up. Neither of them are bad lenses. But they're not, like, we're really nice looking. They're, like, we're weird and we look good. Whereas these are, like, a real swing at, like, cutting above their weight for 1500. I mean, the choice really becomes they only open to a 2.8 and the 2.8 is legit, not their sweet spot. You really want to shoot at a 4. As opposed to the Atlas, that open at a 2 and they really start to look good between a 2 and a 2.8. So you get like a stop and a half extra light out of the Atlas, but like you're never going to fly those Atlas on a stabilizer. Like they're big, heavy anamorphic lenses. So for action or sports or like, you know, I do a lot of bike work. I do narrative bike work. Like that's my thing right now is like telling stories about people living lives on bikes. I'm not like a sports action guy. I'm like a bike lifestyle guy. And like, these are great for that in a way that no other anamorphic is.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, you're not going to find anything close. I don't think yeah. that you, especially that you could stick on a Ronin 4d and they have yeah. uh, it's a 1.5 squeeze, right? Is it constant through, yeah. through the whole range? Like, cause I know yeah. that some of the cheaper ones, it like changes, which is weird.
0: Like it's marked as changing. Like they tell you it changes or you have just experienced it changing.
2: No, it's, it's like a, a factor of the, the lens itself. Like there's a, I think that one that I was talking about before, I, I, I think it's great joy is the name of the, the company that makes it but it's they it's it's like a 1.5 to 1.3 x so Ooh, like it changes I gotta read about this lens as you as you close the iris it changes as you focus. change the
0: iris or as the focus is focus changes? my
2: bad focus yeah focus it's focus so yeah. it, it, if you're if you're like focused up close you have less squeeze less anamorphic squeeze than like far away or whatever which
0: is great def- joy optical.
2: Is that it? Did you find it? I, I think
0: that's I, what I am looking it, at it.
2: But yeah, the the that was like I mean for me that's just kind of like okay, well I'll just shoot spherical and and never have fun lenses if that's the if that's what I got to deal with cuz I I don't even really know I'm sure that like kind of looks like breathing in terms of the when you're pulling focus I'm sure that look that's what that looks like. So yeah, if, and I noticed that these also have like the the Lawas have a really close minimum focus, don't they? Like for for
0: anamorphic. For anamorphic, I was entirely satisfied with the minimum focus. Okay. I was like, oh yeah, okay. What I really desperately want. So right now, the only things they have out are a twenty-seven, a thirty-five, and a fifty. I really want a seventy-five. Yeah. Like that's when you know
2: that's when anamorphic really sings. Wait, oh oh
0: yeah. 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 When you're like it's dusk and you got like a skyline and you're on a 75 and like that on the 4d moving like yeah. you know we'll get there i mean it, honestly it's making me like i'm debating i'm probably going to get a 4d and i'm debating going up to the 8k 4d so i can get 6k resolution in super 35 because the Lawas only cover super 35 whereas the 6k 4d only gives you 4k and super 35 and maybe 4k is enough 4K was enough on this last job, maybe. And a camera was a Alexa SXT. It was 3.2K. Like, maybe I don't care about K's. Yeah. But it does make me consider, like, do I do the 8K? It, I'm like thinking about it for that reason, because of all of that. But no, they are a constant 1.5 through the whole focus range, where you know, and 1.5x on a 16 by 9 sensor still ends up giving you, you know, plenty of squeeze. Yeah. Like that's
2: enough. 1.3 oh, yeah. isn't enough. There's a few that I've kind of been coming out that are 1.3, which I wouldn't waste my time with that. But 1.5 is is enough.
0: Yeah, it's like a nice sweet spot where the out-of-focus out, out of focus bokeh has like a nice little gentle roll-off. Honestly, also, you know, with any lens, I always got to talk about skin tone reproduction. I was really happy with skin tone reproduction here. Nice. I felt like it was like pleasantly flattering to the performer. Now, the one thing I do have to say is all of the action shots were one cyclist. I'm about to do two things in July with this setup that are like, one's a fashion thing. And like, you know, we've all fallen in that trap where we have like a particular lens lighting combo that's really good with one performer. And then you, like somebody else has a different head shape or like a different skin tone. And you're like, oh, fuck, yeah. that doesn't work. Right? Like I always think apparently on this set of Return to Oz, uh, Friuza Balk was the star and there was like a lens, the one movie Walter Murch directed and there was like a lens where he was like, I remember this lens.
3: story because I read that book. I just want to throw yeah. out
2: there.
0: I'm
3: <laughs> still listening. just jump,
2: the... dude. I was like, whoa, George is
0: back. You know, you know <laughs> what's well, I crazy? I love that story. I love that is story
3: because it was, I was the I was telling
0: first- that story waiting for George to be like, I know this. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I knew you knew it, but I knew you knew it. And I was like, George is going to know this. I'm going to keep saying this until George been doing jumps a in.
3: podcast together for a million years.
0: Yeah. I know. I okay. I love That's that story, a, <laughs> though.
3: I've always loved yeah. it. Anyway, keep telling yeah. the story. Don't,
0: don't well, worry no, it's about just them. like, you know, there are these things where, like, we think of lenses as being really, like, universal things, but it's like different lenses flatter different faces. And, like, different lighting flatters different faces. And, like, it's a very small percentage about different things that change for different people. And, like, I did a lot of testing with one actor. And I feel like you can learn a lot about how it reproduces faces with that one actor, but it could just be a beautiful combination of like these lenses and that actor. So I'm excited for more variety in July, just to make sure my suspicions bear fruit. Sweet. I'm glad we talked about it some more. That's our first ever two week series of, of tech news. And uh, I'm glad we did it. Cause you had like all sorts of other questions.
3: Nice. Um, well, all right. Good.
0: Well, I'm, I'm on the internet at charleshane.com. I'm Charles Hayne on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on YouTube at Charles Hain. Uh That's where the law and Nanomorph thing is it's also on the youtube thing and i do youtubey stuff and i do this podcast and and um i like bikes
1: <laughs> i'm on the internet at lost in graceland and on an internet website at gghawkins.com
2: i'm todd Blankenship. Uh, i also do youtubey things at am i a filmmaker got a new video dropping this week
3: and I'm George Edelman, editor in chief at No Film School. And this was a great one, guys. Thank you all for for being here. I love it when we get this full crew together. You can find everything we talked about and more today at nofilmschool.com. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Email any questions to editor at nofilmschool.com, and we will try to answer them on air. And thank you so much for
0: listening.